That's right. We are back. It is chapter three of the Four Kings of Boxing, History of Boxing podcast. We are talking one of the many men named Sugar. This time, Sugar Ray Leonard. And I am joined by the effervescent Baron Von Awesome. How do you do, sir? I don't know if effervescent is the right word. Um, <laughs> if you guys watch tonight long enough, you might see a man have a psychological breakdown on tonight's episode. Oh, it's all very exciting. How you doing, Pat Mullen? Uh, I buried one of my favorite uncles today, so I'm a little upset about that. Some other stuff going on. I want to say RIP, Uncle Frank Kanjimi. He was a fantastic jam-up guy. Uh, lots of fun at the horse races, lots of fun at the fights. So this episode is going to partially be dedicated to Uncle Frank. Uh, my condolences, sir. I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Thank you. So moving on to Mr. Sugar Ray here. We've talked about Marvin Hagler. We talked about Roberto Duran. You know what I did today? I watched the Showtime Four Kings documentary, the four-part documentary that they did. And I don't necessarily want to compare what they're doing to what we're doing. It's very apples and tacos. But, um, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, you and I are, the way that we broke this down and the way that you you know, we agreed on the format. It was let's highlight each one of the boxers in their own show. And then let's move on to the fights between, you know, the sets of fights between the different boxers and the way that they did this four part documentary, it was kind of this 10 year span. And I thought it was interesting. And I wanted to just kind of throw this at you at first because we did the heavyweight history of boxing and we talked about life after Ali and how, there was this quest to find, you know, the next great heavyweight boxer. And what we didn't talk about at the time and what the documentary asserts, this is what I want to get your opinion on, is that gap of time that we, you know, you know, the, the Forgotten Sons era that we talked about was actually filled by the Four Kings. Uh, it really was. Um, at a time when there wasn't a heavyweight star, we had a breakout of lighter division stars, um, Generally, the, the A-list of that were the four guys we've been talking about on the series, Roberto Duran, Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, um, and, and to a lesser extent, guys in the lighter weight divisions like Alexis Arguello, Bobby Chacon, uh, and, and those guys, um, which on, on the one hand, it was, it, you know, it was sad because we didn't have a dominant heavyweight personality or champion at the time um, who was larger than life and brought that attention, but at the same time, it allowed these tremendous fighters underneath that heavyweight scope to shine, and that's why we're doing this show because we got the time for these guys to shine and be amazing and great. And here we are. Um, and depending on which fight we're talking, depending on which fight we're talking about, they were also big box office. I mean, oh, yeah. thinking, about, thinking about like the big box office fights and the heavyweight division, you know, modern times, the <coughs> ever elusive Joshua, you know, Tyson fight. <laughs> if we ever Tyson, get it, yeah, if we ever get it or even Tyson Wilder, or whatever iteration of that. I mean, these were both big money fights. A lot of the Mike Tyson fights were huge. A lot of the Ali fights were huge. But there were some big ones in this lighter weight class as well. I mean, um, I, I think a more apt comparison would be to like the Floyd Mayweathers and Manny Pacquiao um, yeah. uh, of our time. But yeah, one of the things I want to talk about real quick, and then we'll get into the history of the man. You know, we talked about like, especially during the heavyweight boxing podcast, we talked about how there were guys that, the money men of the world looked at and said, you're our star. We're going to, we're going to draw a frame around you and we're going to not protect, but we're going to highlight you and get you into the spotlight because we think your pretty face will sell tickets. 
in a boxing ring. And it never, you know, Ali worked out the best. Ali is probably like the best case scenario, but there were certainly other attempts at this as well. And when I, and one of the things the documentary, the four Kings talked about specifically regarding Sugar Ray was how, how the narrative of him, if you ask Marvin Hagler was this guy was handed everything because he had a pretty face and a likable personality and charm and charisma and talent. No one's taking that away from him. And if you ask Sugar Ray that, he gets all bent out of shape and was like, no, 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 no. I had to fight for everything, too. And, 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 and I think that is sort of the theme of our uh, examination of this man's career tonight, uh, at least the first part of it, is how much of this was an attempt to make another Ali and how much of this was, no, 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 he earned every bit of this. Or is it somewhere in the middle? You know, there's some wise words that Alan Thicke once spoke to me, and it was, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. Indeed. And it's not so much all column A, it's not so much all column B, it's right. somewhere in the middle of the two. Right in the middle of that Venn diagram. Yeah. All right. Um, before we get into this, Pat, one last thing. You have some interesting uh, feelings about Sugar Ray. I do. Tell me, about you. Tell me your feelings, Pat. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil some of the latter episodes of the show because mm-hmm. we'll cover it in more detail, uh, particularly Absolutely. during, uh, you know, the Lent Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns rematch, Roberto Duran rubber match era of Ray Leonard. But I'm not a big Sugar Ray Leonard fan. Um, okay. I, I, and I take nothing away. And we'll talk about Sugar Ray Leonard, the fighter, in this episode, particularly in these years where I really – feel I'll give credit where it's absolutely due in many respects. Um, It's more a case of how he handled things in the latter part of his career that deter me as a fan. Okay. And a lot of it has to do with the, the amount of natural God given ability this guy has plus the work he put in versus the, and I won't go into tremendous detail, but versus some of the tactics he used in his later career, um, that deter a, a fan like myself from, from somebody. Yeah. As we get into further chapters of this podcast series and we get into his fights in the second half of his career, I have lots of questions about his detached retina, but we'll get there. Not today, but we'll get there. All right. So our story begins. Uh, Ray Charles Leonard named after his mother's favorite singer was born in Wilmington, North Carolina to Cicero, and Gaitha Leonard, the fifth of seven children. Leonard's family moved at an early age to the greater Washington, D.C. area, finally settling in Palmer Park, Maryland, when Ray was 10 years old. Cicero was a night shift grocery store manager, and Gaitha was a nurse. Ray had a fairly stable middle-class upbringing with two working parents and was, by all accounts, a very quiet, shy child through high school. Ray's older brother, Roger, himself later to turn pro as a fighter, had begged the men running the Palmer Park Rec Center to start a boxing team. And Pat, you and I talked about this with the boxing series about how boxing was a boxing was a way to, and they talked about this actually in the documentary as well. Seems to have been a lost art in modern times, but back in the day, boxing was one of those ways to get wayward children off the street. It was a, um, I'll, I'll actually just quote the Four Kings. Uh, for many, it was a place where they could find a male parentage figure. Uh, that they did not have in the boxing gyms. Uh, ab- absolutely true. Um, uh, I myself kind of had the same uh, 
effect with that when I started boxing at a younger age. Um, and, you know, again, you look at the outreach now versus then, very, very different. That's why we don't have such a, a depth of talent of American fighters in a lot of divisions, particularly heavyweights, um, because they get turned more nowadays to go into football or basketball type of situations versus boxing because there's been such an outcry for so many years about how they don't want to create violent bullies, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, generally was always shown to have the opposite effect, but that's a whole nother discussion. Actually, I do want to follow that up, but in a slightly different area with the focus on CTE, such as it is, and a lot of the negative press that hang on, <laughs> then a lot of the negative press that the NFL gets, do you think there's going to be a pendulum swing in the other direction to where they're going to start to turn people away from football uh, and back into the sport that has been um, statistically proven to cause less brain damage than football, boxing. No, because I generally think facts don't matter to people the way they should versus feelings. And mm -hmm. the perception is, oh, they're getting punched. Oh, my God, CTE, so awful. No, it's going to happen. When, again, as you're pointing out, statistically proven, boxing has far less impact CET or, excuse me, CTE impact than does, you know, gridiron football. Right. That's unfortunate. Um, if anyone, anyone who matters listen, listens to this podcast, bring back boxing programs. Um, but yeah, which is a weird thing because it's like, like what what kid is it in like karate or taekwondo or something? Like you're not going to get hit in those things either. But you know, like with I, I boxing, think, I, think, uh. I think the thought process. No, you know, and let's be fair. Nobody enrolls their kid in a taekwondo class, you know, to learn self defense. Right. They're they're not learning self defense in that. They're learning very uh, artistic ballet moves that they're not going to actually use in a street <laughs> fight ever. Sure. And they get, um, you know, once there's contact made, that's, oh, point, stop, point, right, versus, right. oh, he hit him with a left. No, then there's a right hand coming behind it and another left hand. It's not, you know, point, point, yeah. point, even though there's headgear. <laughs> uh, quick aside, we'll get back to this. I have a, my cousin's son, I think, took Taekwondo for a number of years. He got quite good at it, got belted and everything else. I don't think he actually sparred. I'm not <laughs> entirely sure how he belted, but apparently in the 2020 uh, the 2010, 2020 years, you can take a martial arts class and not actually touch another human being and send it belted. I mean, you know, I was uh, the first actual martial art I was enrolled in was Taekwondo. And mm -hmm. uh, we did very little live sparring, you would call it. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, again, point, point fighting. Mm -hmm. But we had so much, you know, padding on. It was, you know, like two pillows kind of <laughs> running at each other. Um, like yeah. the guys in the sumo suits and jackass. Oh, it felt just like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but that was that was the level of contact at the time. So uh, again, you're you're not you're not learning applicable self defense in that you're you're learning very artistic ballet and how to specifically use a a mechanism in a system as opposed to well yeah boxing you know jab will work really good in the ring but will it work in a street fight oh yeah it'll work. Well, maybe someday some of those kids can go on to become AEW heavyweight champion. Anyway, <laughs> center director Ali Dunlap. Get it? Wait, hang on, I'll do it to myself. Eh, where is it? There wow. It is. <laughs> wow. I, you haven't seen that yet? That's the first time? Uh, not on this show. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Remember that emotional breakdown I talked about, guys? It just got moved <laughs> up really, really quick. Oh, that's a shame, Pat. I mean, I feel bad. Yeah. Moving on. So anyway, my uncle's dead. Um, I really had a really bad interaction with um, this girl I'm seeing, and you know that didn't go so well. And uh, 
Mom's not doing great health wise. I don't have pants on right now. Um, yeah, everything's good. Everything's center, great. Center director Ali Dunlap and volunteer coaches Jenks, Jenks, Morton, and former amateur boxer uh, Dave Jacobs all agreed to start a boxing team of which Roger was a founding member. It wasn't until Roger began bringing home trophies that Ray's interest was peaked, and he began his boxing journey in 1969. Leonard reached his first significant milestone in 1972 as a featherweight, reaching the national AAU finals but losing a decision. Leonard lied about his age to compete in the Olympic trials in 1972 as a lightweight, but lost a disputed decision to Greg Whaley in the semifinals. But Whaley took such a beating in the fight that he was not allowed to advance and never boxed again. Despite the loss, many were impressed by Leonard and Sarge Johnson. Assistant Olympic coach remarked to Jacobs that fighter you got is sweet as sugar. Leonard at that point would be referred to as Sugar Ray Leonard, but was one of the many fighters named uh, Ray adopting that nickname after many, many considered the greatest pound-for-pound boxer of all time, Sugar Ray Robinson. In 1973, Leonard would father a child with high school girlfriend Juanita Wilkinson. The couple would agree to have the baby but not get married until after the 1976 Olympics, where Ray's goal was to win a gold medal and gain endorsement contracts while attending college. Ray had no designs on becoming a professional boxer. While Leonard trained Juanita and their son, Ray Jr., would live with her parents. Um, something that came up, uh, and I know in the notes here you get into it, but uh, I'm going to bring it up now. One of the things the documentary talked about was he wasn't earning a living while training for the Olympics. He was being sponsored and supported, but he wasn't actually drawing a paycheck. And at the time, and this um, touches the, what I do professionally, the way public assistance, more colloquially known as welfare, worked was you could not draw welfare if you had a man in the home. And they would send social workers, uh, government workers out to the home to make sure there was not, you were not harboring some sort of adult man who could go and get, who can go and work if you were drawing government assistance. Um, this would later rear its head when he was uh, served with a paternity suit. Yeah, but they were not, you know. But again, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's a prestige thing. Obviously, it is a you know a, a mark of some uh, of a true talent when you can win the Olympic gold medal or even compete in the Olympics. Just getting there is is a um, a milestone in and of itself. But as Ronda Rousey talked about, like it's impoverishing, you know. It's a situation where people sacrifice a lot and are not in ideal situations in order to get to this prestigious place. And then afterwards, that's why so many of them go into, you know, go into things like pro wrestling or they do endorsements or they go into acting or whatever, because they have sacrificed years of their life where they could have been drawing an income, not drawing an income to chase that medal. Do you want to comment on that, Pat? Oh, 100%. You know, and it's it's not as though Ray was some absentee dad that was like, ah, screw this girl. I'm not going to be right. there. This was, again, like you pointed out, this was an agreement they had in place where the plan was, okay, hey, we got pregnant. We're going to have this baby. For the interim, I'm not going to be working because the goal is I'm going to work to this Olympic gold medal that I have a real shot at. And when I get that, we're going to be able to have endorsement deals and things. We're not going to have to worry about anything and we'll be okay. And, you know, that that's fine. Um, that's okay. But, you know, at a certain point, Juanita and the baby are not in a good way because they need some assistance. So she 
correctly files for public assistance at the time because she's an unwed, technically single mother. But the way the system works, like you pointed out, they're going to see if there's a father involved and who the father is. And, you know, he's listed on the birth certificate of Ray Jr.'s birth certificate as the father. So naturally they look at him and the county at that point is going to intercede and file paternity charges on behalf of the mother, not her filing charges against Ray for being a deadbeat dad or anything. And unfortunately, this has a really negative impact on him because any potential endorsements or sponsorships, nobody wants to touch them because there's the the perception. Well, well, here we are having a here we are having a nuanced conversation with details pointing out it's not this, it's this. And that's not not happening in the press. No, they're just painting him. Oh, he has a son. He doesn't take care of him. He doesn't have a job. He's not paying for any of the child's well-being and really just kind of doing an unfair hatchet job on Ray that I don't think he ever forgot as, as time went on uh, based on how he's going to build his career. Um, but again, the, the plan was Ray was never going to be a professional boxer. Ray was going to win a gold medal, get endorsements to have his you know wife and baby taken care of, event, well, eventual wife and baby taken care of, and he was going to go to school. Yeah, his mom expressly did not want him to be a boxer. And again, also, as as part of him winning a gold medal, he does get, uh, as a reward from his hometown, a college scholarship Mm. that he's not able to ultimately use. But it was really kind of a big deal. Like, that was the plan. He was going to be going to college to pursue a career in that vein and ultimately just never gets to because of the paternity suit situation coming up on him. And, you know, we talk about the the impoverished circumstances of Olympians, which is true for so many of them, that in order to put this work in to be the best in the world, you can't do anything else. You can't work a job and, and survive and do these things and have an outside interest. You have to be so focused and so committed to what you're doing that it basically takes up everything you're doing. So for Ray, this kind of, you hate to say it motivated him, but it did because now he's got no choice. He needs to go out there and be the best he can be or else it's going to have a very negative impact on his future. And he does what he has to do in that regard. Ray's amateur career persisted. And in 1973, he would capture the National Golden Gloves title on the same night Marvelous Marvin Hagler would lose in the middleweight finals. And then in the AAU championships, the roles were reversed with Hagler coming away with the championship and Leonard losing a decision to future professional opponent and ranked contender Randy Shields. In 1974, Leonard would win both the AAU and National Golden Gloves Championships, repeating his AAU title in 1975 and winning the Pan American Games. He would go on to win the Olympic trials and join the star-studded 1976 Olympic boxing team representing the U.S. Leonard captured gold in the hearts of America along the way, fighting every bout with a picture of Juanita, which would later get him in trouble, tied to his boot. Alongside Michael and Leon Spanks, Leo ran... Randolph and Howard Davis, the team produced five gold medals and five world title champions in Leonard, the Spinks brothers, as we've talked about, Randolph and the heavyweight, Big John Tate. Ironically, Davis, who was in who was voted outstanding boxer of the games, did not win a professional world title, losing closely contested fights to Jim Watt and Edward Rosario. However, the endorsement deals Leonard banked on were nowhere to be found because life's not fair. While the citizens of Glen Arden, Maryland, awarded awarded the local hero a scholarship to the University of Maryland, Wilkinson shortly before the Olympic filed, this is what we were talking about, a child support petition for Prince George's County, Maryland, for $156 a month. Wilkinson stated she didn't feel it was fair to Ray to distract him from his goal for himself and his family. When she named Leonard as the father of the county, filed a civil suit like Pat was talking about. Um. 
And again, to make it clear, Juanita not calling Ray a deadbeat, not trying to say he's not supporting us. She filed for temporary public assistance, which is her right to do as an unwed single mother. Right. But when you have a legally named father who is involved and not dead or not in the county or trackable, they're going to be hit with a paternity suit on behalf of the county, which Juanita didn't know what happened. She thought she could just file, get the assistance and move on with her life. Yeah, but there, there's the a whole dis- there's a whole discussion to be had here about the system of you know means tested public assistance, but this is not going to be that pod- podcast. No, Let at just- the time it was basically that the county would file on behalf of the whoever was filing, no matter what. That they if they could find a father, they were filing suit on behalf of them. That's right. just how the process was. Yeah, it's it's. Let me just say this, and then we'll move on. The idea that your need is less of an issue than someone's perception of your need really makes on top of the already negative stigma of having to need public assistance you know it's always ever since like the 80s especially like the reagan era which we will eventually get to you know the idea of people on public assistance are welfare queens and stuff like that you know they're they're driving they're eating caviar and driving around reagan i got very happy (laughs) sure you know and they have fur coats and they're driving around in cadillacs they somehow managed to amass on public assistance i'm like you know, I'm sure there was there were people who took advantage of the system, but that the vast majority no of people, get right out of town. <laughs> the vast majority of people who acquired it needed it, and it should not. You should not have to be in a worse situation to get it. it you know, it, I don't want to get off on a tangent. Let let well, let's wish just, in one hand and you know what in the other and see which fills up first. Let's just say the history of public assistance is a. Uh, <laughs> One, one that needs re-examination. Moving on. <laughs> not wanting to see, ta- speaking of which, not wanting to see Ray taken advantage of, Dave Jake has introduced Ray to Mike Trainer. Trainer was an attorney and talked to his white-collar professional friend. Oh, Don King does not like this guy, by the way. Uh, professional friends by putting together a fund to support the Leonard, uh, young Leonard by sponsoring him in his career. Trainer described it uh, as it was like convincing his friends like buying an old, <laughs> buying in a racehorse are starting a softball team. Eh. They weren't in it to see a big return on investment, 8% to be exact, but it was a fun thing for them to say they were involved with and most of them genuinely wanted to help Ray. Yeah. Uh, the initial investment in Sugar Ray Leonard saw uh, 25 businessmen invest a total of 21000 to be paid back at 8% over four years. Three potential trainers were sought after to work with Ray. Eddie Futch took himself out of the running by insisting that to work with, together with Ray, would ha- he'd have to relocate to Philly. And Gil Clancy would only do it if he held the titles of manager and trainer. Enter, and this name should be very familiar if you've heard our previous podcasts, Angelo Dundee, the trainer of the late, great Hall of Famer Muhammad Ali, otherwise known as Cassius X, otherwise known as Cassius Clay. Under the agreement, uh, Dundee would allow Morton and Dunlap to handle all of Ray's day-to-day training, well, Dundee would come in at the tail end of the camp to sharpen anything. Uh, work strategy and had final say overall. Opponents selected for 50% of race purse. And February- the opponent choosing, very critical. Yes. On February 5th, Leonard made his first pro debut against Louis Vega in front of 10,000 people in the Baltimore Civic Center, winning a six-round decision, earning 40000 for his professional purse. Let's talk about the Louis Vega fight for a second, Pat. Um you know, I watched highlights of this in preparation for this podcast. One thing you notice about Sugar Ray Leonard right off the bat is I, I would be curious to hear what you think his deficits are because here's a guy who looks like he has excellent conditioning. 
throws high volume, but also is deceptively more powerful than he looks. He's hitting Luis Vega with a lot of power punches, a high volume of power punches, but he's also got really, really good footwork, and he's uh, and there's a lot of in-ring movement. He seems at face value, and I can see why people got behind him the way they did, and he had the career that he did, like he's the total package. He's very, very polished at a very early point in his career, comparatively to most. Um, and, and again, I think a lot of that is due to very strong development from an amateur standpoint and where he developed in that regard, where the amateur program was still a very good breeding ground for professionals. And on top of that, now that he's involved with Angelo Dundee, who can come in and fine tune some of the points before fights, which was generally going to be his role. Not only does he have this great amateur background, now he's learning from one of the great professional trainers of all time who has mastered tactics, movement, things of that nature, and how to magnify a guy's strengths really beyond anything else. Um, you know, you talk about Ray being deceptively powerful. Absolutely the case, and a lot of it due to his hand speed, where there's generally two kinds of power punchers. There's a clubber and a snapper. Mm-hmm. A clubber is the guy who hits you, and you feel every bit of it. You can see it coming, and you can brace yourself, but it still hurts. Clubbers are guys like George Foreman, uh, Marvin Hagler to an extent um, where you can see the punch coming and brace yourself, but it still hurts you and it discourages you and makes you not want anymore. And then there's the snapping puncher where it's the guy who hits you with the punch. You don't see it because they snap it off so well. Yeah, and that's like Ray. Floyd Mayweather Jr. Being a modern example of the, the deceptively stronger due to his hand speed and volume. Up until he's a welterweight and he fights a more safety first approach because of hand sure. issues. Yes. So you're talking the the lightweight, junior welterweight, junior lightweight Floyd Mayweather, absolutely, where, you know, the guy who knocked down Diego Corrales five times, that guy's a perfect example. Um, but, again, the snap on his punch that, that you don't see and how he's able to reel it, that's the kind of power that Ray held deceptively and is so visible at this early point in his career against a lot of guys. So that's just the beginning of our journey here. Uh, after this, he's going to rattle off a series of wins uh, culminating in his first ranked fight against, speaking of Floyd Mayweather, his dad, Floyd Mayweather Sr. So along the way, he gets a unanimous decision over Willie Rodriguez in Baltimore, uh, a third-round TKO over Vinny DeBarros, a fifth-round KO of Frank Santor. A lot of these fights are taking place in Baltimore, by the way. Um, He gets a sixth-round KO over Augustin Estrada, second-round KO over Hector Diaz, gets a decision against Rocky Ramon. Not that Rocky Ramon. Jim Cornette fans, a different Rocky Ramon. Uh, Art McKnight, he gets a seven-round TKO. Uh, Javier Muniz, poor bastard, got knocked out in the first round to uh, fans in the New Haven, uh, in the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, This is over a two-year period, by the way. This takes place over 77 and 78, and where he's fighting almost every month. Bobby Heyman, um, he retired on the stool in three rounds. Randy Milton, he TKO'd in eight rounds. Rafael Rodriguez, he wins a decision. Dickie Eklund, a decision. And then Who finally... Dickie, Dickie Eklund, of course, played by Christian Bale in The Fighter, the half-brother of Mickey Ward. All right. And then finally, we get to this first-ranked opponent in Floyd Mayweather Sr. 
in which this almost goes the distance, but he gets a TKO in the 10th round. Let's talk about it, Pat. Uh, he put a pummeling on, and it's so funny because I actually, because you can't tell who's who in the, in the footage I watched at first. <laughs> you really have to like, like, wait, who's, like, you lose track of them. They both have like the black is beautiful, giant afro, you know, and the white trunks, the yeah. white trunks. It's like, oh my God, like, like if you, like if you're not paying attention, you're gonna miss who's who, and then it's like who's beating up on who in this fight. It, it's you really have to rely on looking at how they're 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 fighting, and mm -hmm. you, you know that the guy trying to use the shoulder roll basically pretty consistently is Floyd. I'll tell you, uh, Sugar Ray, again, not known as a clubberer, not known as somebody who's just gonna take you into the corner and beat your head off, but he took Floyd Mayweather into the corner and tried to beat his head off. Oh, he did. <laughs> he absolutely did. Um. Mayweather Sr. is a very, very good defensive fighter. And if you look at Floyd Jr., who we've seen a lot of in the modern day, Floyd at one point in time trained by his uncle Roger, who great professional himself, world champion, and at, later on by his father, Floyd Sr., after a reconciliation. If you look at the Floyd Mayweather who fights, when he's trained by Roger, much more offensive-minded, trained by his dad, much more defensive-minded. And you see the elements of that and how Roger and Floyd each fought. Floyd Sr. is very defensively minded. And it, it, in this fight, because he's so outgunned by Ray's offensive talent, it's more a case of him at this point trying to just make Ray look bad um, by not really giving Ray anything and making him work for everything he had to do. Um, and again, Ray has always rated this among the 10 most difficult fights of his career because of how, how difficult a look Floyd Sr. gave him and trying to hit him cleanly and really be able to finish the job on him. Um, it's just that Floyd Sr. didn't hit very hard, never did, and carried that. And he just didn't have the offensive potency to let elite guys know, hey, I'm here and you're going to be in a fight. He was just outgunned each time. And this is no exception where there are moments in time where he makes Leonard miss a lot. Yeah. But Ray, to his credit and to Angelo's credit in the corner, doesn't get discouraged by this. Angelo can see what's happening and is telling him, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep punching. Hit him on the arms. Hit him on the shoulders. Hit him on the elbow. Hit him where you have to hit him because he's not going to give you anything easy. And if you can hit him on the arm and he comes back, then you can go for his head, which stylistically is very smart. And they asked Ray Leonard years later when Floyd was really ascending to the pound-for-pound -pound ranks, Floyd Jr., uh, how would you fight him when you, when you had to fight him? And Floyd said, the first thing I would do is throw a left hook as hard as I could at his lead shoulder where he likes to dip. And if you watch this fight later on in the fight, he does that to Floyd Sr. And it causes Floyd Sr. to not raise his shoulder as much because it's in pain. And it opens the lane for Ray to hit him with right hands. I want to take a brief moment here to talk to you about Grammarly. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake for you on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching... Contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements to download Grammarly today, which I'm sure Pat used to write these wonderful notes that we're talking about here that uh, punctuate the story of the great Sugar Ray Leonard. Grammarly uh, is currently running a special for listeners of this podcast, so to take advantage of that, click our link at getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. If Pat Mullen, Baron Von Awesome uses Grammarly, why aren't you? Get on the stick, people. That's stick spelled S-T-I-C-K. And I know that because of Grammarly. 
Yes, I know that. I know that. But Lieutenant right. Daniel ain't got no legs. Yes, I know that. <laughs> All righty. Um, Look at that, everybody. I just showed you Forrest Gump in 10 minutes. However, rather than the 15-1 Mayweather, let an almost fought a different opponent, 11-0 Detroit-based Thomas Hearns, who we will be talking about next month. Dundee had been out of the country on a cruise with his wife when ABC called to offer Ray a base purse of 100000 to fight Hearns at the... God, even in the 70s, 100000 for a fight. UFC, pay your fighters more. Um, now, anyway, again, one hundred thousand dollars for a fight, and he's fifteen and zero. You know, right. and again, a burgeoning network star, but not a world champion, not yet rated in the top ten, and he's right. going to get paid one hundred thousand dollars. Yep, uh, at the Providence Civic Center in Rhode Island, with a press conference set to take place for the official contract signing. Sugar Ray Leonard Inc. had hired Tony Doyle as their promoter of record, rather than to have established new promotional licenses. Trainer and Doyle may not have been impressed by the credentials of the 11-0 Hearns. More on that later. But upon getting the news, Angelo Dundee knew better. At 11.30 p.m. the night before the press conference, Dundee called Trainer and Doyle and told him the fight isn't happening. Dundee said that Ray was not yet ready for Hearns, but would be in a year or two, and the fight would be worth significantly more than it would be at that moment. Yeah, they, when we finally get to Sugar Ray Thomas Hearns, it's like the, you know, the GDP of Yemen. Um... Leonard would stop Mayweather and go on to his next fight. Uh, Randy Shields, he, uh, who he'd beat, um, he'd win a unanimous decision against uh, Randy Shields in Baltimore. He moved on to another unanimous decision against Bernardo Prada. Uh, <clears throat> he retired on the stool Armando Muniz in six rounds in, in December of 1978. And then he kicked off 1979 with a TKO in the eighth round against Johnny Grant in Landover, Maryland. Uh, he rattles off two more. In February, he fights in Miami Beach. He gets himself a tan and a TKO in eight rounds against Ferdinand Marcotte. And then uh, he goes on to March of 1979 in Arizona. By the time he got to Arizona, he had TKO Daniel Aldo Gonzalez in one round. A short trip, to say the least. But then he turned on the buzzsaw, and <laughs> he took on... Aldofo Virouette in uh, Las Vegas or Dunes Paradise, Nevada on April 21st, 1979. Pat, tell me about the uh, importance of the Virouette fight. Adolfo is the brother of my one-time trainer, Edwin, part of the Virouette brothers. Um, two New York-based Puerto Ricans uh, who fought as lightweight and junior welterweight fighters in welterweight. Uh, Adolfo had been the NABF, the North American junior welterweight champion. Adolfo also fought as a lefty, and this is the first time we really have to see Leonard against a crafty left-hander, and he acquits himself really, really well. Adolfo, for all his skills, is not really in this fight throughout, um, which is a testament to how brilliant Ray is at the time. Um, just really never lets him get off, constantly cuts angles on him and doesn't let him get ahead. Uh, uses really good mixed-up combinations where he's leading with his right and coming back with the hook instead of jabbing. He doesn't really give... Uh, Adolfo a chance in this fight and it was a huge step where people were like okay we think Ray is ready to take on the, the big names like let's let's see Ray in the top 10 now and see what he can do based on not just beating Adolfo but beating him dominantly it was it was really something to see so yes uh Ray wins the unanimous decision against Virouette and then he rattles off two more victories he gets the unanimous decision against Marcos 
Geraldo. That, and, and, that, and that fight is significant. Okay. So Marcos Geraldo is the Mexican middle, middleweight champion of the world. And Ray moves up in weight for the fight. Ray's gone on record as saying this was outside of Duran Benitez and Hearns, the toughest fight of his career to this point. And believes that his retina situation originated in this fight because of how hard Marcos Geraldo hit him. Uh, Geraldo is, as we talked about in our last episode, going to go on to fight Marvin Hagler and give Hagler one of the toughest fights of his career. Um, he'll later fight Thomas Hearns and kind of do what many people suspect was a dive job against Tommy. But it's significant that Ray can not only move up in weight but look good against this guy because he is such a good fighter. But on the flip side of that, this is where Ray, a fight where Ray believes his retina injury started. And this is significant because it's the cause of um, not as many retirements as Terry Funk, but close. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, he then goes on uh, to retire on the soul, Tony Chiaverini on June 24th in 1979. And then it's finally time. Finally, 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 Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey. It's time for Sugar Ray Leonard to fight for his first professional title. And he will compete for the NABF welterweight title on August 12th, 1979 in Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada against Pete Ranzani. Before Pete Ranzani runs into the buzzsaw that is Hall of Famer Sugar Ray Leonard, who's Pete Ranzani, Pat? Uh, Pete was a very tough welterweight contender. Um, He also fought as a junior welterweight. He was a very conventional boxer. He had actually started fighting in the Army and uh, was their champion three years in a row, um, even beating uh, Carlos Palomino at the Olympic trials uh, at that point in time in 1972. But he's going to lose in the trials to the guy who eventually wins the middleweight gold medal, who we talked about on our last show, Sugar Ray Seals. Um, Renzani, very good left-hand puncher, uh, particularly left-hand body shot, uh, that left hook to the body. Um, but – he uh, His biggest kind of claim to fame is probably winning the NABF welterweight title. He beat Randy Shields, who was another ranked contender. Um, and he eventually did fight from a, for a world title, but he got flattened by Pepino Cuevas in two rounds on one right hand. Uh, it was very, very rough to watch. But, uh, yeah, he uh, Pete uh, will go on to fight in this one. He actually is thought of as a guy who, if anybody's going to trouble Leonard, it's probably going to be him due to his body punching. And unfortunately for Pete, not not the case, but it's a fight that really helped make Sugar Ray in the public eye. Well, his first contest defending the NABA, NABF rather, uh, welterweight title takes place once again at Caesars Palace in Nevada, September 28th, 1979. And Andy Price does not last long. <laughs> Two minutes, 52 seconds of the first round and out went the lights and Andy Price. And boy, was Angelo Dundee upset about this. Tell me why, Pat. So the thought process is once he beat Ranzani, Leonard's up there in the rankings and they're moving him into a title shot. And he's likely going to fight Wilfred Benitez. If there's a fifth king that we're not talking about and we'll talk about a lot, it's Wilfred Benitez um, because he's going to fight Ray. He's going to fight Roberto Duran. He's going to fight Thomas Hearns. He's going to fight everybody except Marvin Hagler. Um, But Wilfred is arguably the best defensive fighter that there's ever been. He had this innate ability to just – understand when a punch was coming and just move out of its way, bend at the waist, maybe better than anybody. He, he was unbelievable. He, you know, the nickname was El Radar, and it was completely applicable, uh, more so to him maybe than anybody. 
And Andy Price was very much a defensive-minded fighter who fought in the same style as Wilford, utilizing bending at the hips, bending at the waist. And that was the thought process as to why they wanted him to fight Ray, because they wanted to get Ray used to that type of opponent before he saw Benitez, because they know how difficult Benitez can be when he's on his game. And so for Ray to go out there and blow him out and, you know, just over, you're just under three minutes, it kind of defeated the purpose of why they brought Andy Price in in the first place. Like, it's great. Okay, he won. But we wanted to be working in a certain type of way. And now we're not seeing that because he just blew right through Andy Price, who's a good fighter, by the way, that got shut out in one round. It's so funny. Like, I love how in boxing you want, you don't always, and I've heard this brought up multiple times throughout various eras of boxing, the modern to, the you know, the way back how you don't always want to beat the guy like your your casual ticket buying ham and egger that shows up maybe wants to see the monster factory get knocked down in you know in one round you know it's just just yeah. one round KOs oh my god this is our hero but like trainers and stuff they always talk about how they they want you to learn how to fight through adversity and you're not going to do that unless you get time in the ring 100% there's you can spar a million rounds in the gym. Mm -hmm. It is not the same as being in a live fight contest and having to deal with that in, in the actual moment in time. Like I, I it's just not the same. I've, I've dealt with it where uh, the first time they had me spar with a Southpaw fighter, it was like, okay, this is very different. I have to adjust and you can feel comfortable because you, you're doing it in the moment. You you know, you have three, four rounds. You understand in your head. Okay. This is a learning process in the moment of time. You have to do it in an actual live combat situation that the urgency changes your mentality changes the comfort level changes and it's like oh god the, the light bulb needs to come on now what am i doing i i have to step this way i have to make him move this way i have to, it, it, it's very very different and so when you're faced with this type of opponent especially to get used to someone as difficult as wilfred and it goes like this it's one of those things where you say damn this didn't pan out like we hoped it would and now we're really gonna have to come up with something big in training we're going to talk about this with Roberto Duran and uh, I think I believe it was Sugar Ray Leonard. But, you know, if you don't mentally have the wherewithal to last 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 100 rounds with somebody, if you've gotten used to the idea that you can dispatch them quickly, when you get into those later rounds, you may have physically the ability to, to last, but mentally you won't hold up. And we have seen guys... What was it? Who was the one who started crying in the middle of the fight? Oliver McCall. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, to, to be an example, crack, but crack, crack addiction didn't help that. But no, no, and I, and I, I get that. That that yeah. we're dealing a little bit more with you know not having time in between the ropes. But, but I mean, you know, Oliver McCall aside, there are certainly guys. I would say in the last year or two, um, like I've seen in various like Caleb Plant fights. Well, uh, I'll say Victor Ortiz is probably the best example of a guy. Okay in modern times where we've seen he can have all the innate physical ability in the world. And he does, he punches like a truck. He can take a punch, but he just mentally doesn't have the wherewithal to continue under difficult circumstances. And, right. you know, if your mind checks out, it, it's that old saying, whether you say you, I can, or I can't, you're right. Because your body's going to follow suit of whatever your mind sets you right. to do. And that's, you know, a perfect example. Yep. Um, so to close things out here, uh, so he does fight Wilfred uh, Benitez next. He, KO, he TKOs him in the ta-da nick of time at 2 minutes and 54 seconds of the 15th round. No controversy about Vegas. that. Um, okay, we'll talk about that in a second. But here he wins the WBC and ring welterweight titles. So what's the controversy, Pat? So 
this is a fight where neither guy was really applicably in trouble throughout the fight. Benitez was knocked down in the middle rounds by a jab when Leonard managed to catch him off balance. It's a very tactical, very uh, not action-packed fight, as I warned you ahead of time. Yeah. There's a lot of brilliance involved, don't get me wrong, um, defensively, obviously. And Leonard would go on to say— at the end of it, Benitez is bleeding from the forehead. Well, that was from a headbutt. Okay. That, that was from a headbutt in the middle rounds that, you know, obviously got worse as time went on. Mm-hmm. Um, but Leonard said it was like trying to fight a mirror because everywhere he went, Benitez was, you know, and, and it was just so hard. And the, re- the this fight getting stopped. So there was there there were large sums of money placed on the idea that this fight would not go the distance, which was against conventional wisdom because everybody's thinking, OK, these guys are two very tactical, smart guys. They're unbeaten. They've never been stopped. It's probably going to go 15. It's probably going to go to points. A very well-known uh, Las Vegas gambler put a, a very large sum of money on this fight not going the distance. And allegedly, there was some pressure applied to the referee Carlos Palomino, probably best known for refereeing the Roland Manila to this point in time. And at the very end of the 15th round, with less than 10 seconds to go, Leonard scored a knockdown. Benitez wasn't terribly hurt, but Leonard jumped on him with a fistic flurry that will be a trademark of Ray's career. And even though Benitez did not look to be in trouble or out, and the red indicator lights in the corners were on, which would allow you to know that there is less than 10 seconds remaining in the round, Carlos Palomino decided to stop the fight. Okay. And you can allege one thing, you can allege another thing, but that's there's a lot of school of thought that has gone into the fact that Palomino was probably uh, either compensated or told to stop this fight as soon as the opportunity arose. Um, someone throws mud in the eyes of the referee, and he doesn't stop the fight. He's unable to because he's wiping mud out of his eyes in this alternate universe where someone carried mud into an indoor arena um, to throw at a referee. So this goes the distance. Who wins? Leonard still wins. Okay, and that's that's not just my opinion. Leonard was absolutely uh you know ahead on the cards and should have been um, based on how the fight went. We we talked about how Floyd Mayweather kind of was content to make Leonard look bad just with his defense. A lot of this fight was Benitez doing the same thing, although a lot of that comes from Benitez suffered what's essentially called a stinger, um, which is a common neck injury. Mm-hmm. Benitez suffered it to his left wrist Ooh, okay. and ended up fighting very much one-handed for a lot of this fight. Um, not that it's an excuse. Uh, if there's a bigger excuse for Benitez, it's that he didn't train for the fight, or at least according to himself. And Benitez's own father allegedly wrote an article for Ring Magazine before this fight <clears throat> saying, here's why Sugar Ray Leonard will beat Wilford Benitez. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, inter- interesting. His, group. his dad and my dad should have gone bowling. I think your old man and my old man should go bowling. Um, it's the 80s, folks. We can do that. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was very much uh, an interesting relationship between Wilfred Gregorio, the brothers. Yeah, it was – Gregorio Benitez was a character, um, to say the least. But he wrote that article. And what's also funny, too, at the time is Wilfred Benitez was dating the sister of Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, wrapping things up here as we go along. He has one more um, defense of his title before we uh, get to Roberto Duran in a separate podcast. 
But uh, he goes against Davy Boy Green, making this 27 and 0 for him as he KOs Davy Boy in four rounds on March 31st of 1980 in Landover, Maryland. So this was supposed to lead to a confrontation with WBA champion Pepino Cuevas of Mexico, but the even they even spoke together following successful Cuevas title defense yes. on television with a tentative date. However, the WBC threatened to strip Leonard of their title if he refused to meet their recognized number one contender, former lightweight champion Roberto Duran. This was due in part to WBC president Jose Suleiman's strong ties to Duran's promoter, Don King, who's not in love with the fact that uh, Sugar Ray Leonard is an independent with his own promotional team. Yeah, Don King didn't like that, not one bit. And Bob Arum to a lesser extent, but Bob Arum wasn't a fan either. As a result, the planned Leonard uh, Cuevas unification bout was shelved, and Leonard agreed to meet Duran, and Cuevas would defend his title against an up-and-coming talent from Detroit named Thomas Hearns. More on that next month. So, yes. This uh, was interesting, yeah. So, next month, we'll talk about Thomas Hearns, and that completes the first four chapters of this series, and then we'll start getting into the fights themselves, starting with the duo of fights between Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran, which was an interesting set of fights to say the least. But Pat, take me home here. Tell me about you know your thoughts up to this point on Sugar Ray and whatever else you want to say before we close out for the evening. I do kind of want to talk about Leonard versus Cuevas because that was a fight that was being talked about and was it had a, it had a, a tentative date scheduled with the thought process being it was either going to take place in Las Vegas or in uh, I believe the Houston Astrodome was talked about. Wow, um, and Leonard actually wound up doing the color commentary on Cuevas's title. Is what it wound up being his last successful title defense against Harold Goldbrick from South Africa, and Cuevas demolished him with a vicious knockout in five rounds. And after the fight, there was a sit down between Howard Cosell sitting next to the successful Cuevas on one side and Leonard in his broadcast suit on the other, with the two shaking hands, talking about how they're going to excited to fight each other. And uh, what they're going to have to fight to do to beat the other guy. And it was like, oh, this is a super fight we're going to have. And uh, sure enough, political beings, what they are, um, stepping in and causing that not to happen. Uh, you have Duran, who at this point is competing as a welterweight looking for a title shot. Duran's promoter is, of course, the venerable Don King, <laughs> only in America, mm -hmm. um, who has major political ties to the WBC and specifically their president, Jose Suleiman. So Don's going to do whatever he can to get that title shot for Duran. And Don knows that a Duran-Leonard fight is a big payday uh, for his guy, and which essentially makes it a big payday for him, whereas he stands to profit nothing from Cuevas and Leonard. So why am I going to let that happen? No, let's, let's make my stroke here with Jose and pull him aside. Jose, that's not the fight. You need this fight. So sure enough, they threaten to strip Leonard if he fights – uh, in this unification bout instead of fighting his number one contender, Roberto Duran, um, who is number one contender by virtue of being Carlos Palomino, which we talked about on our last show. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we got a great fight. Don't get me wrong between, you know, two of the best pound for pound fighters ever, but you got to feel a little bit bad for Pepino. Who's made, I believe at this point, it's something like 18 straight knockouts. And it's just one of the most TV-friendly fighters. Well, he's finally going to get this big score. I finally got a, a shark in there with me who's going to give me a payday. No, sorry, Pepino. And it's actually going to get worse, and we'll get into that in the next episode, too. Yeah, looking ahead, um, not to give too much away here, but 
never mind the other three kings larry bonds kalule bruce finch kevin howard lalonde terry norris hector macho camacho you know whose name's not on here fucking cuevos yeah, Pepino is not on there, and Pepino's not going to be on there. No, no, he is not. Life's not fair. That's the motto of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, Matt. you don't have to tell me that tonight. So up to this point, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard is earning his bones. He's being a good dude. And outside of the, you know, a few sort of, you know, odd things here or there, I'm not seeing where he deserves um ire the kind of ire that you and i talked about before we turned on the recorder you know in various chats and whatnot so just kind of sum that up for me before we uh, end for the night to this point he really doesn't deserve much in the way of ire um he really only deserves that if you're another fighter and you see yourself as good as leonard legitimately and he's making all this money and you're not and sure. again he got that i ain't got the situation of this podcast life's not fair um, Leonard happened to be backed by a very uh, influential group of businessmen because of where he's from, because he had the nice middle class upbringing versus, you know, guys from the slums of Panama or the ghettos of Newark who didn't have that, but were just as good and had to fight for scraps. Again, we'll, we'll, and we talk about Leonard versus Louis Vega in his pro debut makes $40,000. Marvin Hagler's first $40,000 purse is in his 50th professional fight when he gets a shot at the middleweight title. And Hagler's, first, Hagler's first professional purse is $500. Yeah. And look, I get that. Um, but as I told my kids, you're tall and you're pretty and you're in relatively decent shape and you're not half an idiot, you're going to do really, really well in this world. That's just the way it is. <laughs> when, you know, and so when you're Sugar Ray Leonard and you look like you do and you're willing to play the game, and I think that's, that needs to be said here and really draw a circle around it. Sugar Ray Leonard was willing to be managed. And that's the other end of it. Sugar Ray was going to allow himself to be a brand, to be marketable, to be all mm -hmm. these things. Hence why not only did he sign a TV contract with ABC as a fighter, he was also going to do commentary with CBS and HBO and sell 7-Up, uh, you know, most notably with his son as in the commercial with him. And he became the kind of new face of boxing at a certain point in time when Ali was fading away and we didn't have the marquee heavyweight. A lot of people were like, who's who can we get? And there was this young guy with this great smile and who was well-spoken and uh, had an Olympic gold medal and, right. you know, was very marketable. And that was Ray. Not, not, not to engender a whole other discussion or to make it sound like something that it isn't, but other than being black in America... Sugar Ray was everything you wanted in a suit in a star, in a male star. And and he didn't have, like we talked about, he wasn't one of those, you know, slum ghetto products who fought his way out of dire circumstances to make something of himself. This was right. a guy from a middle class upbringing who had two working parents and, you know, a, a working, you know, wife with a son. And he was trying to provide for his family and. He, he was very best, much not the typical boxing story. He's very much the second coming of Ali, minus the Muslim part, which makes him even better. And I yeah. don't mean that as a judgment. I'm not judging him. I'm no. saying if you're marketing a guy in the late 70s, early 80s to be the next Ali, who better than Sugar Ray Leonard? There wasn't anybody out there better than Leonard, and that's the thing. 
So, like, I get Roberto Duran, Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns, and there, what has he got that I ain't got? But there's a lesson to be learned from Sugar Ray, and that is you have to learn to play the game, not to quote Triple H or anything or Motorhead. But you do. Feeling seven up, I'm feeling seven up. That game. Um, Yeah, you know, you... If you want certain things in life, there are concessions you're going to have to make. And some people are not going to make You're going to have to sell out. <laughs> and and sell out he did. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in future podcasts. All right. That wraps up this chapter of the Four Kings of Boxing, um, specifically dealing with Sugar Ray Leonard. Pat, I know you're having some hard times, baby. So what do you hard listen times. to? You put hard times on the American dream. Hey, hey, actually, I got an even better question for you for this uh, plug on AmazonMusic.com. You know there's a new L.A. Guns album coming out? I did not. What a yes. shame. What happened to Jane? Yeah, I don't know. I know I, I tried to pitch you the new Night Ranger, and you were like, rattle no. <laughs> but there is a new, uh, I checked recently, and there is a new L.A. Guns album coming out later this year. I can give L.A. Guns a lesson for sure. Outstanding. What are you listening to? What are you listening to these days? Uh, let's see. What am I listening to these days? Uh, lots of David Lee Roth. Suck at Gene Simmons. Um, <laughs> always roll with Dave, folks. Um, lots of that. Lots of Misfits. Uh, lots of Orville Peck. I'm throwing in there. Uh, okay. What a great gimmick and showman he is. When um, you're training for these Mania of WrestleMania podcasts or other deep dive history podcasts that we do, and you're you know you're snapping weights, you're uh, snatching. That's what the, that's the term they use. When you're snatching weights and you're pumping iron and the sweat's glistening off of you, what are you listening to? Uh, Frank Stallone. Uh, nice. <laughs> uh, no, uh, lots of Kane Roberts lately. Um, I'm a big Kane Roberts fan. Not a lot of people know who that is. He was a bodybuilder slash guitarist mm-hmm. uh, slash awesome uh, musical presence who played for Alice Cooper, had played played a solo career Alice, for a while. Alice Cooper's on tour right now. They're actually playing in Tampa with Ace Freely. Yes, so are the Jonas Brothers. Um, what was I, that look for? I, nothing. I'm. I, They're I, nice guys. Gee, give them a break. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so a lot of Kane Roberts lately. Uh, songs like uh, "A Strong Arm Needs a Stronger Heart," which is like my my workout montage song. Uh, when I put and when you're stuff together, and when you're snatching those weights and you're pumping that iron and you're listening to those Kane Roberts jams, are you doing it with the AmazonMusic.com, Pat? Actually, yes, I am. Uh, I have my free trial that I tried for 30 days, and I got hooked, and I decided I was going to keep on to it, and. Fortunately, we offer a 30-day free trial through our show that you can get on to. That's right. It's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. And if you want to be awesome, like Baron Von Awesome, and snatch weights and pump iron and have glistening sweat and listen to Kane Roberts, you need to click that link, because why wouldn't you, to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. You fill out the information, agree to the 30 days, and you can stream all the music you want on amazonmusic.com. And if you don't like it... That's crazy talk. You can cancel it after 30 days. No fuss, no muss. Otherwise, you keep paying for it like you would do with Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. But it's a great service. Everyone loves it. It helps us out. It'll help you out. Everyone needs a soundtrack to their life. And there's no better place to find your soundtrack than AmazonMusic.com. All right. Yeah, give, uh, give Kane Roberts a strong arm needs a stronger heart a listen. Because if you listen to that song and you can't work out, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. All right. So um, our next... See, I'm going to do it like instead of trying to find it on my stupid calendar, 
I'm actually just going to look it up. Hey. Uh, yes, sir. It's worked in the past. All right. So September 23rd, myself and Pat Mullen will be doing chapter four on Thomas Hearns. And then we get into the fights. October 27th, currently, we've got Leonard Duran one and two. December 2nd, we've got Leonard versus Hearns one. And then we kick off January. We'll be back January 13th for chapter seven Hagler and Duran and Hearns versus Duran. And then we'll go from there with what we're doing. For those of you who are into our mania of WrestleMania podcast, uh, we just wrapped up four and five. That was Pat and myself. We had a grand old time. Yes, we uh, did. We're going to start doubling some of these up now because, you know, um, some of them really don't need a, a hyper focus on just that one year. So um, Wednesday, September 22nd, myself, uh, Pat Mullen, and probably Chris Bailey will be looking at the Warrior Years, the rise and fall of the Ultimate Warrior, uh, WrestleMania 6 and 7. And then October 21st, we'll be doing uh, what what could have been Flair and Hogan but wasn't. And the uh, the steroid trial and out with the old and in with the new generation. Prime beef, that's what they called it. WrestleManias 8 and 9. November 17th, we'll do the Mania of WrestleMania 10. That gets its own show. And then December, just in time for Christmas, it's the, it's the shit years. Wrestle 95, 96, and 97. Kind, well, it was kind a banner of, year at the Mullen House. Uh, yes, sir. Um... December 20th, your Christmas present from us to you. WrestleMania is 11 in Connecticut, 12 in Anaheim, and 13 in Chi-Town. We're really sorry. <laughs> We're then, really sorry. And then uh, we uh, kick off 2022 on January 19th with the Monday Night Wars and... The Attitude Era. We'll be doing 14, 15, and 16. We might have Stuart uh, on the show from back in the day from the old 411 podcast. He has an interest Stuart in that. Stuart Lang so. of Scotland. Yes, sir. Uh, so, And then we'll be wrapping it up uh, over the coming months in 2022. We'll be ending with WrestleMania 20 because after that, they all just kind of run together. Um, and then that's it. That's what we got going on, Pat. Anything else? Uh, no, thanks everybody. I held it together. Look at that. No breakdowns. I'm fine. Even though Mark's a licensed clinical social worker and I probably need one of those. Everything's great. All right. We'll talk to you again soon, folks. Thank you, Pat. This was great. Hey, is that a pistol? I'm going to go put it in my mouth. Uh, someone send a well check to Pat and we'll see you in a few short weeks. Be well, be safe and behave. <laughs>